This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. My guest is one of the major critics of the war on drugs and an advocate for science-based harm reduction policy. He is founder of the Drug Policy Alliance, an organization that's been instrumental in marijuana legalization and helped to solicit comments for the 2016 Fight to Keep Kratom Legal, among other projects. Rolling Stone magazine called him the real drug czar. He has a new podcast called Psychoactive. It's an honor to have on our podcast, Dr. Ethan Nadelman. really like the podcast uh, I've gotten through most of the episodes and oh, great. Uh, yeah yeah it's sounds good a lot of a lot of people I'm fans of on there uh, like uh, uh, Dan Savage you got Dr. Weil uh, Michael Pollan you had uh, Nora Volkow on and she's the head of uh, National Institute on National Institute on Drug Abuse you told her drug research today in America is like doing social science research in the Soviet Union um, is it only the legality of drugs that get in the way or is there just a general anti-drug mentality that perseveres even in the sciences well, I, I mean, it, it, you know, it's not generically anti-drug, right? Because sometimes the you know U.S. government agencies can be more open on this stuff. I mean, just looking over the website of Kratom Science, that you can see that there's divisions within the U.S. government about how to view Kratom, which is yeah. an essentially a drug. Um, you can see, you know, there's beginning to be more of an evolution on on psychedelics. One of the things I mentioned in the podcast with Nora Volkow was that some of the other agencies within NIH, within, within the National Institute of Health, are already beginning to move forward a little more proactively on the psychedelics research, whereas NIDA has been really slow on this. And, you know, I mean, they've, they've approved a little bit of research on ketamine and treatment of addiction, ketamine being the one legal psychedelic uh, drug. Uh, but they've shot down other proposals on psilocybin, including a really important potential study on psilocybin and uh, treating uh, cigarette addiction. You know, I think they'd had a tiny little study in that area. And then there was a follow-up, which got an incredibly high score from NIDA, which should have meant that the grant would be approved, but it got shot down. And I can only assume that that must have been for some sort of political reason near the top. So, you know, it's, it's, it's about, you know, look, the illegality of drugs and the kind of prejudices about them typically go hand in hand, but it's, it's complicated, right? We know that, that um, opioids, right? Some are legal and are recommended for this and that, and others are totally illegal and some are in between. Uh, so, so there's no generalizing about it. When I said to, to Nora Volkow, you know, that for many years, it seemed to me that trying to do innovative, you know, research on drugs and drug research and drug, 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 treatment, drug abuse, drug, drug markets, whatever, in the U.S. is a bit like trying to do, you know, innovative social science research in the old Soviet Union. You know, what I follow that up by saying is that what happens is that the researchers, you know, quickly learn that there are certain questions that the funding agencies and the authorities don't really want to have asked and don't really want to have answered. And then if you persist in asking those questions or in coming up with the wrong answers, you may find yourself being disfavored when you're applying for grants thereafter. You may find your phone calls less likely to be returned. You may find that your proposals are sent to reviewers who are known to be hostile. Um, You know, there's all the subtle ways in which uh, scientific research and other academic research can be suppressed and discouraged without actually locking people up, right? Without actually, you know, hurting them in the way that we sometimes associate with authoritarian states. Mm-hmm. And you also see that I, I think what happens, what happened in the U.S., as I think happened in the old Soviet Union, is that many research start to many researchers start to develop 
you know, political blinders so that they avoid asking those questions and giving those answers. And then at some point, those political blinders evolve into kind of intellectual blinders so that point that they almost stop, stop asking those questions, stop even thinking in those directions. And when you look at the amazing amount of money that's the National Institute on Drug Abuse, I mean, billions and billions of dollars um, on drug abuse research, you know, providing 80 to 90 percent of all the drug abuse research funding in the world. When you look at the dozens, if not hundreds, of really interesting and important questions that they could be funding researchers to answer, you know, you realize there's something fundamentally non-scientific going on there. And mind you, I mean, part of what came through in the interview with Nora Volkow, she was being very discreet, was that, you know, she wants to see herself as first and foremost a scientist, but she has to answer to both her higher ups in the administration, which included not just Democrats, but Republicans, you know, Trump and Bush. And she has to answer to congressional committees. And those things are highly political. And many of the people in Congress have no inhibitions about politicizing science. And primarily, I would I point that criticism at the Republicans, but it's even sometimes true of Democrats. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is what we're running into. It definitely is what we're running into. And well, we are lucky because we got uh, well, not me, but the University of Florida got $7 million last year for specifically for Kratom research. So that was actually a good thing. Um, and that was from the National Institute on Drug Abuse? Yeah, mm -hmm. it was from NIDA. And, and, I and just, that was to study the efficacy of Kratom for, for treating drug addiction? It probably It probably has something to do with drug addiction because since it is drug abuse. Uh, but yeah. however, it's like um, I had uh, the head of pharmacodynamics, uh, Dr. Lance McMahon on, and and they're basically studying like how it, the mechanism of how it works, uh, you know, in the metabolism on the brain receptors and things like that. And and I think they're looking for you know ways it can be because it's a partial opioid agonist, so they're looking for ways it can be a safer uh, painkiller. Since you know that's as you would expect, that's probably in demand now since uh, the, with the opioid crisis and everything. Well, I mean, I'll tell you that one of the things that, you know, one of my frustrations I expressed in, in talking with Volkow on my podcast was that, you know, there's a lot of effort going in and funding directed to looking at how these substances operate on the brain and what they do. But I'm not convinced that that's the most useful, useful way to spend this money. I mean, you know, to my mind, you know, the first thing I'd want to do if I was heading an agency like that is to really find out what's going on. And when you have a remarkable number of anecdotal reports about, is it Kratom or Kratom? What's the pronunciation? We haven't decided yet. Okay. <laughs> it's so we say Kratom, but it, anybody, it's like, see, take your pick. Yeah. When you see all these reports and, and anecdotes about people finding that, 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 that Kratom helped them put an opioid problem behind them or to stay off of opioids, mm -hmm. you know, never mind the kind of, you know, moderate, relaxing substitute for caffeine type effects. You know, what I want to do is to interview thousands of people who have tried Kratom to deal with an opioid issue and collect as much information about as possible about who they are and how they were using it and what their experiences were. Because to my mind, you know, you know, what's what's actually working for people to put a real drug problem behind them or to at least get a handle on it. That's what's more important. And. How it actually works in the brain is important as well, but I think that fades in significance compared to understanding how this stuff really works for people. You know, I mean, that key question, and then knowing, you know, is there a sufficient safety margin so that people aren't using something that's an effective medication for one thing, like addiction, but it turns out it's creating even worse problems in another way, right? Yeah, yeah. And I should say your the name of your podcast is Psychoactive and um comes out every Thursday, right? Uh it's been coming out every Thursday. Yep. Uh I think I think last week we uh delayed a bit because we I wanted to have on one of the world's leading experts on tobacco harm reduction in e-cigarettes. <laughs> and we were expecting the FDA to come out with a big announcement about which of the big companies they were going to allow to continue selling e-cigarettes and under what conditions and so we pushed back that uh that went until a friday and then the fda basically you know asked for more time and so nothing happened but yeah it's coming out every thursday there's i think 10 episodes that are up as of you know right now mid-september 
and plus my little introductory monologue. It's due. I mean, iHeartMedia, I'm very impressed. They've been promoting the hell out of it. So I'm getting over 100,000 downloads roughly on the episodes within a few weeks. That's great. That's great. A very good number. Um, and we'll have to see, you know, if they don't keep the marketing up, I'll have to see what the core audience is going to look like and just hope it keeps expanding. Yeah, I'm sure anybody that listens to this will, will definitely be interested. Ryan, I mean, one of the challenges, of course, is that, you know, I'm covering the entire spectrum of drug issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one week it'll be about the overdose crisis. The next week will be about how, you know, New York legalized marijuana and created a new gold standard for marijuana regulation. And then I might have Andy Weil or Tim Ferriss or Dan Savage talking in a broad-based way or or Michael Pollan talking about his latest book or, you know, Professor, uh, Yale professor James Foreman talking about racism and the, the drug war and the debate within the black community over the drug war. So the question is whether people are going to want to keep tuning in for subjects that the only thing they share in common is that they have to do with a psychoactive drug, and I'm the host, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm assuming I'm going to do an episode sometime, you know, on, on kratom. Yeah. And I'm going to do episodes on other kind of, you know, it, you know, all, all drugs that are less maybe in the popular discourse. So we'll just. I'm, I'm thinking about doing a, a an episode about sleep. I'm thinking about doing one on placebos. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of doing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm hoping to get a few, you know, prominent politicians talking about current legislation. Yeah. I'm hoping to do some stuff that looks at the drug war in Mexico or the Philippines or things like that. So, so it's really going to cover the a really broad spectrum. And hopefully there's a market out there for people who are interested in things across the board or who get pulled in because they like the way I'm talking about these issues. You know, we'll see. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of the Drug Policy Alliance, which you founded. You you started um, with the with the Lynn Smith Center, is that Lynn Smith, in 1994? Yeah. Can you tell me about Alfred uh, Lynn Smith, who's, who's the center was named for? Sure, sure. I mean, well, I can tell you, first of all, you know, I, I got going on this issue back in the 80s when I wrote my PhD dissertation on the internationalization of, you know, uh, policing and drug control. And I actually worked even in the State Department's Narcotics Bureau for a year as a consultant and interviewed drug enforcement, other agents, like in 19 countries around the world, both U.S. and foreign. Um, And then I started teaching at Princeton in the late 80s when the drug war was going crazy and started writing and speaking about how this was the wrong way to go and kind of, you know, all of a sudden popped out into kind of media fame, had a few runs of 15 minutes of fame in, in 1988, 89, 90. Um, and at that time, there was an organization called the Drug Policy Foundation that had just been created that was bringing together people who were critical of the drug war and did not necessarily agree what the solution was, um, but who recognized that the drug war was the wrong thing. And then in the early 90s, I got a call out of the blue from a, a financier philanthropist named George Soros uh, inviting me to lunch. And he was intrigued by this drug issue. We hit it, hit it off. And I started teaching him about harm reduction and, you know, things like that. And so I left Princeton in 94 and um, I had introduced Soros to the Drug Policy Foundation. So we started funding their work. Um, But then I wanted to create my own my own little, you know, interdisciplinary center on drugs and drug policy, either at a university or then Soros asked me to do it within his foundation. And I decided to name it after Alfred Lindesmith. And Alfred Lindestis was a sociologist, professor of sociology at Indiana University from roughly the 30s to the 60s. And he was really the first prominent academic to challenge conventional thinking about drugs, drug addiction, and drug policy. He, he wrote one book uh, uh, on opioid addiction, another one on addiction in the law. I mean, he was really a kind of cutting edge thinker way ahead of his time. He was persecuted in various ways by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. I think they tried to get him fired. Um, you know, but he really was one of the few people standing up early to challenge the conventional thinking. And so I just thought, you know, if I'm going to start an interdisciplinary center on drugs and drug policy, what better than to name it after uh, Alfred Linda Smith? Now, of course, the problem was, you know, people struggled. You know, you know, who is Linda Smith, right? I mean. People, you know, it was was, the people, you know, working with me always had to spell out the name, you know, it was confusing to people. (laughs) We kept that name for six years and built both a program nationally, internationally, 
around drug policy reform and focusing on a range of issues, harm reduction issues, marijuana issues, the bigger drug war issues. And then in, uh, after six years, in the year 2000, um, you know, Soros and I had agreed that at some point I would spin my institute out into an independent uh, organization. Uh, but at that time, the Drug Policy Foundation had fallen on hard times. So what I did was I spun my Linda Smith Center out of Soros's foundation, which was called the Open Society Institute, merged it with the Drug Policy Foundation, and created what's become known as Drug Policy Alliance. Um, and so that's been the name for roughly 20 years now, as DPA, Drug Policy Alliance, grew to be the, you know, really the biggest and most successful drug policy reform organization, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I want to emphasize to the listeners how, how instrumental this organization was in, in changing uh, the, uh, the marijuana laws. And um, the, I guess the first uh, major victory was in uh, California. Was that? Well, that's uh, right, Brian. You yeah. know, I mean, I should say, by the way, it's that really one, our, we really, the, most of DPA's work fell into three areas, right? One okay. third was the marijuana issue, which involved legalizing marijuana first for medical purposes and then more broadly, but also, you know, trying to reduce marijuana arrests, trying to reduce the racial injustice and, and disproportionality in marijuana arrests, and, and also pursuing decriminalization where legalization was not possible. So that was about one third of the work, although it got about 80% of the headlines. And then the second third of the work was about rolling back the role of the drug war in mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. So that focused on, you know, getting rid of mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. It, it focused on providing alternatives to incarceration for people picked up with small amounts of drugs. It involved on, um, you know, lessening the harshness of the penalties. I mean, just a whole range of ways whereby people were getting arrested for possession, production, sale, purchase of heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, and other drugs. You know, rather than being treated in the criminal justice system as if they were murderers and rapists, mm -hmm. would be treated more equivalently to low level, you know, you know, uh, uh, white collar criminals or to or to people committing petty thefts, which seemed morally the way that one might think about this if you were not actually going to go to full legal regulation. And then the last third of our work was about making a serious commitment to treating drug use and addiction as a health issue, not a criminal issue. Mm -hmm. So we led the way on funding and legalizing needle exchange programs mm -hmm. and legal access to uh, sterile syringes and pharmacies back in the la late 90s and early aughts. And then we jumped early on to trying to deal with the issue of overdose prevention, beginning in the really around 1999, 2000, before this had become such a national crisis. Um, and about educating Americans about European approaches to drugs and about taking a kind of harm reduction approach to drug education, more of a sex education approach to drug education. So, you know, we, nobody wants kids to use drugs, but we focused on making to sure that you can reduce the likelihood that kids are really going to get hurt by this stuff. So we sort of worked in each of those three big areas, plus a few others. And about 90% of the work was in the U.S., but we also kept our eye and, uh, on things abroad and helped people internationally as well. And I'd say our, our first major breakthrough victory was the one that you alluded to there, which was the legalization of medical marijuana in California mm -hmm. in 1996, where some local activists had drafted a ballot initiative, um, but had no chance of getting it on the ballot because you need to collect a lot of signatures for that. So I got involved and was able to raise millions of dollars um, and get the initiative on the ballot and mount a professional campaign. And that became the first uh, successful kind of breakthrough, you know, medical marijuana initiative. I, I sometimes say it was the first time that the nascent drug policy reform movement showed that we could play ball in the major leagues of American politics. And we then followed that up with you know, successful medical marijuana initiative victories in Alaska, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Nevada, and Maine. Mm -hmm. um, and then jumped forward another sort of you know, uh, 10, 15 years, uh, became very involved in, in, in the efforts to legalize marijuana, uh, not just for medicinal purposes, but for all adults. And you know, starting off with Colorado and Washington in 2012, and then Oregon and Alaska 2014, and then shortly before I stepped down from running Drug Policy Alliance, uh, you know, we, we led the effort in California to legalize marijuana there and helped with the, other, the efforts in other states as well. So I should tell you that in early November, 
I'm flying out to San Francisco because there's going to be a one-day conference organized by California Normal uh, to celebrate the 25th anniversary of California becoming the first state to legalize medical marijuana. Wow, it's already been 25 years. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? One of the things I realized in building Drug Policy Alliance some years ago was that, you know, many of the young people come in to work for me. I mean, they, you know, had barely been born or were in elementary school when, when, when marijuana was getting legalized for medical purposes. And many of them were just getting out of high school or even in the middle of high school when Colorado and Washington were legalizing marijuana. So, you know, I realized that, you know, the, the kind of mindset had shifted. I mean, for me, you know, I got going back in the 80s when, you know, fewer than 30% of Americans wanted to legalize marijuana and marijuana was legal nowhere. And, you know, by the time I stopped running, you know, DPA, Drug Policy Alliance in early 2017, you know, we had legalized marijuana in more than two, two dozen states and legalized it more broadly in eight states. And we had 55% of the population supporting it. And now you jump forward to where we're sitting in 2021 and medical marijuana is legal in about three fourths of the state. And it's legal for all adults in about a third of the states or more. And, you know, over 60 percent of the country says, let's make it legal. And you're even getting a, a majority of Republicans in some polls and a big majority of young Republicans saying legalize it. So it's really been a dramatic shift in public opinion and public policy uh, that I think the only thing analogous to it really is the movement of the gay rights movement and and the legalization of gay marriage, which was in some mm -hmm. respects a bit of a role model or elder sibling for those of us fighting for the legalization of marijuana. There was a story, I just had uh, Maya Solovitz on, and I read her um, book about harm reduction. Um, there was a story in that book about uh, a woman named Joy Fishman, whose uh, son died of an overdose and married to Jack Fishman, who patented naloxone, which was like tragically kind of ironic. DPA, I think, had some contact with her. Um, well, I mean, actually, I mean, the truth is, I'm the one who brought Joy into the movement. Mm -hmm. um, it was fascinating. I, um, I had, you know, I'm always was always looking for new donors um, to support our work, and I happened. I was reading an article about the apartment building uh, right down the block from me in, in Upper West Side of Manhattan called the San Remo, and uh, and and it mentioned the San Remo being, you know, it was the number one address for Democratic Party. Um, fundraisers, but there was a Republican in the building. And I actually happened to have some of my big donors living in that building. And at the very end of the article, it said um, the Fishmans um, are also contributed Democrats. And Jack Fishman, you know, was the guy who created naloxone, although he never made a penny from it, actually. I don't think he patented it. He never made a penny from it. Hmm. But he was a researcher at Rockefeller University who got wealthy um, through his investments in other ways, but not through naloxone. And so I, I kind of cold called Joy and said, I'd love to, I saw about this connection. And she said, you don't know the half of it. And I went over to see her. She lived right around the corner from where I live. And she says, let me tell you my story. You know, my husband, Jack, you know, he, you know, invented naloxone. He's my second husband. Um, but I had two kids with my first husband and my son um, uh, he had problems with heroin. He got off of it for a while with Ibogaine, actually. And then he had, was playing around with his friends and did some heroin and he overdosed and there was no naloxone around. And, um, and uh, you know, they dropped in the emergency room door and he died on the gate of the emergency room at the hospital. And, and so, I mean, Joy, this bizarre thing where her son from her first marriage dies of an overdose and the guy she marries when her son's still alive is the mm -hmm. guy who created naloxone. So Joy became more and more, um, you know, I mean, we became friends. She started supporting. She was the first person to provide dedicated funding to Drug Policy Alliance to support our overdose prevention work. She recently joined the, uh, the board of Drug Policy Alliance and her daughter, Julie, uh, joined the board of the Harm Reduction Coalition. She then began to get more actively engaged. So she's played an important role in helping get needle exchange going in Florida and helping fund a, a program there at the University of Miami. So she's just a, a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, person with an amazing life story, you know, and this, yeah. you know, profound tragedy and this profound, uh, you know, kind of what's the word uh, coincidence or, or, or paradox or whatever.
you know, between her second husband and the son from her first marriage. How important is it to tell personal stories like that with uh, with advocacy on on some of these reforms? Because that's what we do on here. Part of my podcast is I just have people come on and tell their stories. The other part is I have scientists, experts, and everything like that. Yeah. But but is that an important? aspect in, in trying to reform. I, I mean, Brian, you're kind of asking me a leading question there, but I mean, of, yeah. of course it is, you know, <laughs> it, it's really the combination of all these things. I mean, what I found in our advocacy is, is it's everything from the storytelling to the, you know, hardball lobbying to the hardcore drafting of legislative initiatives and ballot initiatives to the litigation in the courts to to the very short public education messaging to educating journalists. I mean, it, it's really to, to accomplish political change in almost anywhere, certainly in America, you oftentimes need these multidimensional efforts. And I think you also have to parse it out. So, for example, in changing um, public opinion, the personal stories are incredibly compelling because, like, I there was no chance for me to come in there and win ballot initiatives until a majority of the public was already sympathetic to what we wanted to do, to legalize marijuana for medical purposes or more broadly, or to roll back a harsh drug, drug penalty or to change the asset forfeiture laws, whatever it was. We, we're, we're not like big corporations, which can, you know, pursue an objective where at the beginning of the year, only 30% of them, 30% of the public supports their objective, but they got enough money that they can ram this messaging to the public and can convert them into supporting, you know, the corporate message just by spending enough money. When you're running a drug policy reform initiative, you know, we're low budget, right? I'm lucky if I can raise a few millions of dollars. I can't raise tens of millions of dollars to these things. So we never did a ballot initiative unless we started off with the public opinion being at least in the range of 55% or more. So the question is, how do you get to it being 55%? And a lot of times, especially in the case of medical marijuana, it was personal stories. It was personal stories, you know, it's um, people. It turned out that by the time we started, I think one third of Americans knew somebody who they believed used marijuana for medical purposes. Um, um, You know, I I think the same thing about personal stories when, say, we'd organize a hearing in, uh, in, you know, at a state legislature. You know, whether the issue is trying to legalize, Vermont was one of the few states that had not allowed methadone maintenance. So, you know, you get people up there telling their personal stories about how this saved their life, being able to do this and how they were working full time, even though they've been on methadone for years, you know, and, and in responsible positions. Or, or, you, or you bring in, you know, the person whose father died of HIV, AIDS, that they contracted through a dirty syringe and have them testify in the legislature. Or you bring in, you know, a child whose father was just sent to prison for 20 years on a first time low level drug sale conviction. Right. And mm. when you have these, you know. Yeah, or, you know, or you have somebody come in who's, you know, living with MS or HIV and talk about how marijuana has been medically beneficial. And you, you have those types of stories. And I will tell you, the most code hearted pro-drug war Republicans start tearing up and saying, well, let me see if there's something we can do to help these people. So mm-hmm. the personal story, it, it, it rarely wins on its own. But it is what changes public opinion, and it sometimes is what actually changes the hearts and minds of powerful legislators as well. Yeah, and and I had another. I mean, I was going to ask about uh, naloxone um, and and harm reduction issue in general, because a lot of people who use kratom are literally using it for harm reduction. Where are we on like the avail- availability of harm reduction tools like naloxone and like fentanyl test strips uh, for the opioid crisis? Well, I mean, it's a great question, Brian. I mean, first of all, on naloxone, there's been a dramatic expansion. I mean, I remember when we were fighting the initial efforts, like in the state of New Mexico in the late 90s, early 2000s, just to make naloxone available to cops. And there was a kind of transition that happened around 2010 or 11, because until that time, you still had a lot of law enforcement and you had a lot of drug control officials and others saying, why do we want to provide an antidote to an overdose? 
that'll just give a green light to the junkies that they can go out and use as much drugs as they want and somebody's going to come there and bail them out. And at some point, the cops, they started coming across enough people dying of overdoses. Um, and the people dying of overdoses, you know, were not just, you know, people living rough on the streets who the cops might have been somewhat callous towards. You know, they were oftentimes, you know, people, you know, neighbors, kids and friends and relatives and all this kind of stuff. And so you began to hear cops um, saying things like, listen, I'd rather, you know, you know, I I'm tired of putting handcuffs on a corpse. Right. Mm -hmm. I'd rather be able to save this person's life. And so what then began to happen was cops started asking um, for permission to carry naloxone, not just the emergency responders. And there began to be a real movement going on there. I remember uh, Obama's um, drug czar, Gil Kurlikowski, he was initially wary of this issue. Um, and then he did a 180 and really came on board as a big supporter. And then, you know, my organization, Drug Policy Alliance, we focus not just on educating people, you know, about how how and why naloxone works um, and try. But we also started passing legislation, you know, working with legislators to make naloxone easy to get. You know, why should one need a prescription for naloxone? It's not a drug you can get high on. You know, there's no reason to restrict control of it. So we started working with legislators to change the laws to be able to get naloxone in pharmacies. So I think that naloxone is now more and more available. There are sometimes shortages of supply. Uh, there's a company which, you know, has produced a, a version of it that's the easiest to administer, I think, through an inhaler, but has been charging a lot of money for that. Whereas if you're able to kind of, you know, give the naloxone, you know, with a quick prick of a needle, you know, that can cost a tiny fraction. So there's issues of cost and access. But by and large, the resistance to naloxone has faded dramatically from, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago. When it comes to the drug testing strips, so whereby people can uh, test their drugs, those things are getting out there more. They're not nearly as available as is true in naloxone. And obviously the harm reduction organizations, you know, the ones that work with um, and try to help people who are using drugs, whether they're coming to a needle exchange program or or whether they're working with homeless people or people in the other sorts of help and their harm reduction programs are working with them in a non-judgmental way, they're obviously making these strips available. Um, but, you know, it would be a lot better if we, and I know there's an organization called Dance Safe, which is doing everything possible to make the, these types of things available at, um, at electronic music concerts and such. Hmm. Um, so there's still, they're out there in a growing number of places, but still grossly insufficient. And the way they're set up you know, ideally, you know, you want some reliable person who's at the at, at, a, at some setting where people may be using drugs, whether it's a club or an event or, you know, out on the streets, you know, where somebody can say, hey, let me know what's in this and what's the potency. You know, is this real? Is there mm -hmm. fentanyl in here? If so, how much is there? Is there that, you know, some synthetic cannabinoid? And if so, which one? And what do we you know, that's what you, you need to know. And, uh, you know, there's still a very, you know, moralistic, why do we want to, you know, people saying, why would we want to give drug users that information? That'll just encourage them to use drugs. Um, but, you know, that's a little bit like the opposition to providing condoms to, to U.S. military in World War One, because the morals would say, well, that will make the, the, the U.S. military more likely to go visit a prostitute, yeah. you know. Or, or it was about the people who advocated for alcohol prohibition, you know, kind of being pleased when people would die from drinking wood alcohol, yeah. uh, because that would, you know, you know that, that would scare people off from, you know, using, you know, good alcohol legally. So there's always that kind of sick group of people in a society who think that people who people use use drugs are better off dead. Um, but I'm happy that we're at least in a phase of American culture and society now where, you know. I mean, it's bizarre. Here we have the country more polarized than it's been since, you know, right before, since basically the Civil War period, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the most polarized we've been in over 150 years. But somehow the drug issue is attracting more bipartisan consensus than almost any other issue. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I take some pride in that having happened. It's obviously been a huge movement and a huge effort where this drug issue went from being the third rail of American politics to being one of the few areas where we see bipartisan le legislation pi passing with bipartisan support. 
Yeah, definitely in the whole Kratom uh, advocacy, it's all over the board as far as uh, politics. Now, they recently have been, there's been CDC guidelines and there's been under-prescribing of opioids. And that's, uh, I've interviewed a lot of people for for this podcast that couldn't get opioids for their chronic pain. So they uh, luckily found Kratom. Um, But a lot of people are being turned into uh, street drugs and they get heroin. They don't know how strong it is, what we were just talking about with fentanyl testing. But do you see the restrictions on opioid prescribing and the increases in overdose as as correlated? Well, listen, first of all, I'll tell you, I'm go- I have two episodes that are forthcoming on um, on uh, on the issue that you just that you just mentioned about pain. Okay. One is an interview um, with the fellow um, uh, Patrick O'Keefe, Patrick Keefe, Patrick Reid and Keefe who just wrote the book about the Sackler family. Uh, And he's, you know, somebody who's, uh, I mean, he basically tells it as a story of of what the Sacklers at Purdue Pharma did Mm -hmm. in grossly over-promoting opioids and promoting it um, for all sorts of chronic pain where it was not the safest or most responsible option. Although, obviously, opioids can sometimes be right. But the other person I interviewed, who I'm hoping that will go up soon, is a woman named Kate Nicholson who recently founded the National Pain Advocacy Center. Mm-hmm. And she's somebody who went for, through a horrific pain experience of her own. She was, you know, a, you know I think she's uh, maybe a Harvard lawyer and uh, was worked in the Justice Department and civil rights. But as a result of her own experience, which she's come through, thank God, um, she started this organization, National Pain Advocacy Center, basically to advocate on behalf of people who are using opioids responsibly. So oftentimes they've been doing so for years and sometimes to manage their chronic pain and now are encountering all sorts of prejudice and ignorance and discrimination because they take a daily dose of an opioid. You know, I mean, we're aware of the fact now that, you know, opioids should not be used as broadly as they are for chronic pain. But the fact of the matter is there are hundreds of thousands or millions of people who are successfully using opioids to treat their chronic pain and where it's where it's being more helpful than it would be if they were pushed off of it. And to have mm-hmm. people who have been you know, maintained in a responsible way all of a sudden dealing with doctors you know, trying to you know, withdraw them from their prescriptions, um, and then they go looking for new doctors, and something like 80% of all doctors would prefer not to have a patient who's maintained on opioids, and 50% won't even take a new patient who's on opioids. I think I have those numbers right there. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're dealing with a situation where the pendulum, you know, which had swung too far in terms of the overprescribing of opioids for chronic pain, has now swung so far back the other way that people who either do need opioids to treat some short-term pain or even chronic pain, and people who have been on it, are, you know, are really getting screwed. Um, and, you know, when you're not treating pain effectively, you are, you know, it's not just the pain, you're, just, you're making people unable to function. You are increasing the likelihood of them taking their own life. You are uh, increasing the likelihood that they will die sooner than they otherwise would if their pain was successfully managed. So um, I I think this is an increasingly important uh, uh, issue in American drug policy. I'm intending on my podcast to have many more guests talking about the issues of pain and pain management, because let's face it, you know, tens and tens of millions of Americans deal with some form of significant and oftentimes chronic pain in any one year. You know, we we have a long way to go in in really getting better at integrating the non-opioid ways of dealing with pain, Um, but it needs to be, you know, a fully holistic approach that's tailored for each patient, Um, not just a one-size-fits-all with either you give the opioid Mm. or deny the opioid. My wife's couple of her friends are nurses, and and I was talking to the one about there's a guy in his 70s that's dying of cancer, and they won't give him anything. Uh, so it's kind of like gotten to the that point in some instances. I think that's that the kind of the pendulum swung a little bit too far to oh the other way. Oh my god! And you know, you know, I mean, it's not just where the doctors or nurses don't want to give a pain medication even to somebody who's terminally ill, but you then have where the where somebody who's dying or where their family members say, oh no, I know I'm in horrific pain, but don't give me any opioids because I don't want to die an addict. 
<laughs> and you get the same old bullshit we were dealing with 20, 30 years ago yeah. with this extraordinary what people have called opiophobia and, 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 and discrimination where instead of focusing on the underlying quality of life, you know, you look in the UK where they, you know, they pioneered that kind of hospice system. And when people got into it, when people, you know, were approaching the last weeks, weeks or months or maybe a little longer of their life, you know, the focus became, focus came on maximizing the quality of their life and minimizing their pain while trying to help them retain, you know, their personhood and their consciousness and all that. And, you know, doctors had the freedom to prescribe whatever was going to work. And that sometimes would involve even things like, you know, what, what, what street users would call a speedball. It might even involve pharmaceutical heroin and mm. pharmaceutical cocaine or yeah. amphetamine or some other opioid. Right. It was all about let's let's stop with the moral judgment. Let's just make available what's going to maximize the quality of life for this person who doesn't have long to live. And, you know, I, one of the things that always, you know, has, you know, gets me animated in my opposition to drug war policies and drug war thinking is that we start putting these ideologies and the, these ignorances above the value and quality of individuals' human lives. What are what are your thoughts about decriminalization versus legalization of drugs, uh, just in general? Well, I mean, basically, I would frame it this way, right? I mean, legalization generally refers to making a drug legally available in the way that alcohol or cigarettes have been available, right? Where all people or all adults can basically go in and they don't need a prescription or anything else to get the to get the thing they want, right? And that's now becoming the model for adult use marijuana as well, as we move from medical marijuana to all adult use, right? So, so I, I, I'm clearly an advocate for doing that um, with respect to marijuana, and I think that's the appropriate model for some of the other drugs that are illegal. Decriminalization generally refers to reducing or eliminating the penalties for personal possession of a substance for one's own use, but keeping the production and the uh, and, and typically the retail sale of it illegal, right? That's that's <laughs> decriminalization, and so oftentimes we see that decriminalization is a kind of not oftentimes in the case of marijuana. We saw that either the legalization of marijuana for medical purposes, where you could get it with a doctor's recommendation, or the decriminalization was a kind of stepping stone towards the broader legalization. And when, you, when I say legalization, I'm basically defining that as legal regulation, right? Mm -hmm. You know, people sometimes think the choice is between prohibition on the one hand and, and free market, no control legalization on the other. Whereas if you think about it hard, critically, you realize that prohibition is actually the abdication of regulation. Mm. It's the government saying this is all illegal and, and, and anything that we can suppress is going to be effectively unregulated or de facto regulated by criminal, criminal individuals and criminal organizations. Legalization means the government is going to legally regulate this stuff. Mm -hmm. And those people who operate outside of the legal regulated channels may still have to deal with, you know, criminal prosecution, right? So it's important yeah. to understand that legalization means legal regulation. Now, when you're talking about uh, the other drugs, you know, I, I remain a skeptic of the value of selling heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, new synthetic drugs over the counter the way we do alcohol or cigarettes, right? Mm. I just think that, that, that there are real risks associated with doing that. I do, however, think that we should learn the lessons from Europe where people who have been addicted to street heroin and have been unable to stop um, by, you know, by, by using, uh, you know, uh, methanone or buprenorphine or by going cold turkey or by trying things like Kratom and, and are still, you know, stuck on their heroin and don't want to be, you know, yet what you have now in Canada and half dozen European countries are heroin prescription programs where people can go, people who have been addicted to street heroin can go to a clinic up to three times a day and get pharmaceutical heroin. They're not allowed to take it home with them. And that's not mm -hmm. legalization, but that's a smart, medically oriented approach of making an otherwise illegal drug legally available. I think that what they're doing up in Vancouver and British Columbia with a policy yeah. that's now called safe supply, and mm -hmm. that involves allowing people who are dependent on street drugs 
to get the drugs they want from a legal a a legal source, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. an important way, especially in the in the face of the overdose crisis. You know, I think with cocaine, um, I can easily see making that available in lower potency forms. I mean, Coca Cola had cocaine in it until yeah. 1900, and so far as we know, the Coca Cola, you know, you know, Coca Cola with with cocaine in it was no more addictive than Coca Cola with caffeine is today. Right. Yeah. It's all, you know, as they say with drugs, it's all about the dose. You know, the dose can be the medicine. The dose can be the pleasure or the dose can be the poison. Right. So, I mean, the way I tend to think about it, Brian, is that what we're trying to do is to reduce the role of the criminal justice system in drug policy as much as possible, but stopping short at the point at which reducing that role of the criminal justice system invites dramatic increases in drug misuse and abuse. Right. So Mm -hmm. you have to look at this, you know, in terms of not just, I mean, some libertarians would say just legalize it all. From Mm -hmm. my view, we should be moving in that direction, uh, but it's going to vary depending upon the drug, the form of the drug, the potency of the drug, all of those variables. I will also just say this. I think that with all drugs, there should be no criminal penalty for an individual who possesses a small amount of any drug for their own personal use. Mm-hmm. So if you, had, if you got a little heroin, a little cocaine, methamphetamine, synthet, whatever, if it's basically just for your own use, you should not be treated as a criminal. And that's more or less what Portugal pioneered about 20 years ago. Um, I mean, it's not technically legal, but it's de facto. Nobody's going to jail for possession. And, and, and this really path-breaking initiative that Oregon passed two in the ballot initiatives last year. One was to legalize um, kind of psychedelic medicine up to a certain extent and, the, and, 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 use for, and personal use. And the other was an, organiza- was an initiative that was put forward by my organization, the one that I'm no longer running, Drug Policy Alliance, to end the criminalization of possession of dr- of any sort of drug. And that mm-hmm. one passed, you know, very healthily in Oregon. So Oregon's become the first state in America yeah. which has some degree of all drug decrim. See, that's it's kind of like kratom is in a, is in a uh, legal gray area because it's legal, but there's no no regulation. So that's what the American Kratom Association, a lot of the advocates, except for the hardcore libertarians, are going for is regulation because we want to know what's in it. Uh, there's been issues with uh, uh, toxic metals because of the grinding equipment they're using in Indonesia, where most of the kratom comes from, is from like the 1950s, and it can leach out lead. So I. I think there should be regulation. Yeah, I mean, I, I gotta say, Brian, you know, I looked uh, before I, uh, you know, came on. Um, I, I uh, looked at your website there, and I thought it was a very responsible introduction to kratom and talking about, you know, the different types of kratom and the need for better regulation. You know, the issue which has most engaged me um, since I stepped down from running drug policy lines four years ago is the fight over e-cigarettes. And tobacco mm. harm reduction. In fact, that's the subject of the most recent episode of Psychoactive that yeah. just went up in the second week of September. And and you know what I'm struck by there is that is that generally speaking, you know, e-cigarettes, the whole phenomenon of e-cigarettes and the other alternatives to smokable cigarettes, may be one of the most important breakthroughs in public health, you know, in modern history. Because it seems mm-hmm. to be that people who are significantly addicted to cigarettes and have been unable to quit, that e-cigarettes and some of these other things seem to work better than anything else, better than the patches and the gums and better than the medications and better than going cold turkey and all that. But what happened was, you know, when, when, when it became popular among teenagers a few years ago, everybody started freaking out. And paradoxically for me, it was almost the Democrats were acting like drug warriors when it came to uh, the whole e-cigarette thing. And so I'm hoping that this gets resolved in a scientific way. But at the same time, as you're saying with Kratom, we do need the government playing a role regulating these products. Because when it comes to what metals are being used, which of the flavors may have some toxicity associated with them, I mean, I think there's a very powerful need for this stuff to be effectively regulated. And it's why, you know, when I I get kind of, you know, I see something like the FDA pursuing a non-science-based approach to Kratom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I think they're trying to do the right thing on e-cigarettes, but operating under enormous political pressure. 
you know, you, you kind of count on these government agencies to to do the right thing from a science perspective. And I think they do it more often than not. But the exceptions are really are really dispirit- dispiriting. I mean, when I was a teenager, everybody was smoking cigarettes. It was uh, well, <laughs> it, it seems I like mean, Brian, that, that's exactly it. it is that. You know, yes, it's certainly the case that there are kids out there who never would have smoked cigarettes, but who did get into using the e-cigarettes. Um, but by and large, when you, you look at the people, the, the teenagers and other, you know, slightly you know, older who have become, you know, quote unquote, addicted to e-cigarettes, they are overwhelmingly the kids who had already used other tobacco products or who would very likely have been able to. I mean, not been able to, would, very likely would have done so. And then beyond that, when you look at the way in which the uh, uh, adolescent cigarette use dropped more dramatically percentage wise in the last few years, you see that there was clearly some substitution effect whereby teenagers who would have got used cigarettes were instead using e-cigarettes, which are dramatically less dangerous to health. So nobody wants teenagers using any type of drug, right? But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is that the likely risk to teenagers of using e-cigarettes, and very few of them go on to become regular cigarette smokers, you know, the likely risk to them are relatively modest compared to the potential benefits for longtime smokers who are able to make the switch to e-cigarettes. You know, I mean, some mm-hmm. of the, the you know the finest tobacco control experts and researchers and scientists, you know, in the country and the world, you know, are pointing out that that e-cigarettes are really a, a kind of technological breakthrough that could save, you know, basically save, by which I mean, add many years of life for millions, tens of millions of people. You know, mm-hmm. hey, Brian, I should also just say, you know, before we sign off, you don't ask me about about my own involvement with the kratom issue. But let me just tell that little story, yeah. which is that back, it must have been around 2015 or 16, when I think the DEA was looking to throw Kratom into Schedule 1 or something like 2016, that. 2016, yep. 2016. And, you know, and so we got some calls from folks in the Kratom world, maybe from the American Kratom Association, maybe others, you know, asking if we could alert our membership. The drug, You know, we had like a mm-hmm. quarter million people on our email list. And so, you know, even though we didn't know much about Kratom, we did a little background. We saw, you know, that people, many people were using it to, um, you know, get off of opioids and other people were using it as an alternative for coffee or things like that. And that there might be some risks associated with it, but a lot, you know, and so, but more we were responding to the principle that the DEA should not be able to just snap its fingers and turn a legal drug into an illegal drug, that there Mm -hmm. needed to be some real process going on here. So it's sort of a courtesy. Um, we blasted out an email to our list, you know, which was used to getting stuff about marijuana or racism in the drug war or harm reduction. We blasted out a thing to our list, you know, let the DEA know that they should not be criminalizing a drug without any process like this. And to my surprise, we got more feedback from that email blast than almost any other email we had ever sent out. It had to be in the top three to four percent of all the emails we sent out. It just seemed to like strike a chord. Yeah. And we were inundated from letters and emails from people basically saying, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, DPA, for doing this. My God, I was I was hooked on opioids for years and my using credit yeah. was the one they only get off. I mean, all of these personal stories. So at that point, you know, I told my folks in D.C. to start engaging a little more closely with American Kratom, Kratom Association and one of the manufacturers uh, got, got in touch with me as well. So I have to say that was I, I was struck to realize that there was this dramatic number of people, um, certainly in the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions in America who were using Kratom successfully mm-hmm. and, and some of whom regarded it as a lifesaver. So I've been very um, kind of, you know, generally sympathetic, um, you know, to the cause of let's figure out the best ways to legal, legally regulate this stuff responsibly so that consumers can get it easily and also be assured that the products are safe. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much for doing that. And definitely we could uh, use all the help we can get. 
in uh, 2013, you told Rolling Stone that you're not fighting for the marbleization of marijuana. Um, can you talk about where we are today on that? Because I know some of these big cannabis companies are lobbying against home grow, and and I just wonder what you think about like home grow in general. Well, yeah, you're basically asking yeah. two questions. I mean, on yeah. the issue of home grow, I just think that's a matter of principle. Yeah. I mean, by and large, you know, people should have the right to grow their own weed for their own use. I mean, that just seems a matter of principle. And there are around this country, you know, significant numbers of people for whom they're growing their own weed is something that is extremely personal. Sometimes it's an economic issue because it's a lot cheaper than buying it in stores. Mm -hmm. But for some of it, it's a more visceral issue. It's almost the way some of the gun advocates, you know, have almost this almost, you know, visceral, if you know, relationship to their gun. You know, and there are people in the cannabis world for whom growing their own plant, their own medicine, their own whatever, you know, is a highly personal, intimate act. And when I see people, I mean, you know, I mean, I played a pivotal role in, in, in launching this whole movement and getting and making it real. And when I see guys in the industry opposing the, the right of people for home grow, uh, I, I am pissed off, to, you know, to no end. And anytime I have a chance to speak to these, in, you know, these folks, I, I am letting, making it very clear. In fact, I'll sometimes when I used to be speaking at industry conferences, I would say, I hope that none of you will ever support a law that would ban home grow. I mean, what the hell is the threat to you? And, you know, yeah. in the same way that the beer companies and the booze companies are not intimidated by people being allowed to, you know, make their own beer at home or, yeah. or you know, make their own booze at home, you know, get out. of it. So so that's just core fundamental principle. And I'm, I'm very glad to see that almost none of the initiatives or state laws are banning home grow. It's happened in a few times, but hopefully those things, and, and even where they are passing, I, even where they are banning home grow, I don't think by and large those laws are being enforced. So, so that's that thing. When it comes to that comment I made in Rolling Stone, you know, some years ago that I'm not here fighting for the Budweiserization or Marlboroization of marijuana, mm -hmm. you know, it was my way of saying, I say, look, we live in America, you know, one of, the, one of, if not the most dynamic capitalist society in history, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there's a kind of inevitability about the fact that big corporations are going to play a, a, a dominant role in this industry as they have in so many others. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't see how you fully stop that. But I said, that being said, there's no reason for us to expedite or facilitate that process. I mean, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, I like the smallest beautiful model. I like the idea of finding ways to limit vertical integration so that you can allow the maximum number of players and you don't have single industries controlling the production, the wholesale distribution and the retail distribution. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm glad to see that when, you know, some, some of the more progressive laws like the one in New York really make a very keen effort to do that. I'm also sensitive to the fact that when people say to me, so Ethan, when's Congress finally going to legalize marijuana totally? And, you know, I have some ambivalence about that. And so do many of the uh, marijuana people who are operating in the states where marijuana is now legal, some of whom are not even that small, because when Congress fully legalizes, that's going to open up the door to big alcohol, big tobacco, big consumer goods and big pharmaceutical all getting into this industry in a way that we see happening in Canada. And, you know, I think that, you know, I mean, right now we have a kind of de facto state protectionism going on for local industries. But I think there are a lot. I, I, it may well be the case that the benefits exceed the cost of doing that. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm OK with the fact that big alcohol and tobacco, you know, are not yet diving into the cannabis industry. Um, you know, there will be some advantages in terms of, uh, you know, maybe price and product and all that. But I, I, I like the way that this has evolved so far. I mean, look, even at this point, most of the people who have been growing marijuana, you know, single, you know, single farmers, people living off the grid, people doing that, sometimes multi-generation families, for most of them, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to survive um, as we move towards legalization, you know, mm -hmm. they just don't have the background skills for dealing with government regulation and all the oversight and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And my single greatest personal regret about having played a key role in the broader legalization of marijuana is the harm that it's doing to the, the small growers who basically, you know, were 
we, you know, we're providing me and tens and tens of other millions of Americans with our weed for decades, you know, in the face of the criminal law. So, um, so what we're really talking about here is, I mean, I like the fact that some of the new laws, including the one in New York and others, are doing what they can to help some of the traditional, you know, the people in growing weed make the transition to being legally regulated. I think that's important. Um, but a lot of this is about the kind of smaller companies, some of which are getting bigger. You know, some of them would like to sell themselves to, uh, you know, big alcohol, big tobacco, big companies. But I'm hoping we don't move that way too fast and that we keep providing some forms of protection for the small growers. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate yeah, it. Sure. I mean, thank you so much for having me on. I, I really admire those who are fighting for sensible policy on Kratom. I regard them as very much allies uh, with and within the broader drug policy reform movement. And I'm also hopeful that the people who are fighting the good fight on Kratom can see themselves as allied with the broader drug policy reform cause, because it is about the same principles. It is about, you know, you know, sovereignty of our own minds and bodies. It is about government regulation being grounded in science. It's about the rights of consumers, um, uh, you know, and it's about, you know, helping people live a better quality of life and whichever psychoactive pro you know, plants and, and substances are out there that can help people do that. And where the benefits exceed the risks for the broader society and for most people, you know, let's do it. The podcast is Psychoactive with Ethan Nadelman, available at the link in the description or your favorite podcast platform. Dr. Ethan Nadelman and anybody at the organization he founded, the Drug Policy Alliance, is who to thank if you have access to legal marijuana right now, like I do. Drug Policy Alliance is at drugpolicy.org. Their support on the Kratom issue would be massive, so if you're a Kratom advocate, you might consider joining the Drug Policy Alliance as a member and asking them for help. We need to expand advocacy and not shrink it, obviously. None of the content on this episode or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast or on any page of KratomScience.com constitutes medical claims or medical advice. The music is Risey, the song is Memories of Thailand, the Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.